really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth, the podcast that offers news, results, predictions, and very, very cool interviews. I've been really lucky with responses I've gotten so far, and the tradition continues here tonight. So I will dispense with the majority of the usual admin stuff in order to get us to this special bonus content pod, which is going to be a two-parter. So this two-part episode tries to explain the evolution of the various forms of football all over the world and how they relate to what we, as Americans, typically call football. So why do we call the NFL football while the rest of the world calls soccer football? Isn't it kind of obvious that soccer being called football sort of makes a lot more sense than the NFL calling itself that? So this pod will attempt to explain and offer a mini history into the various codes of sport that use this term. And to help me, I am phenomenally pleased to announce I will be joined by Dr. Tony Collins, author of such great books as How Football Began and a favorite of mine, The Oval World. Uh, He's also a professor emeritus at De Montfort University. He's a research fellow at the Institute of Sports Humanities, and he's a visiting professor at Beijing University. He is also behind the fantastic podcast Rugby Reloaded, which if you haven't caught it before, I urge you strongly to check it out. All the relevant links uh, for those books and for his uh, great podcast will be in the show notes, as always. So, I am David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the New England Free Jacks. I follow the USA Eagles. I root for Scotland, and I root for my beloved Highlanders down in Dunedin in Super Rugby. Uh, But I'm also interested in the history and culture of the sport, things that, as an American, are sort of shrouded in mystery until you really have to find your way to digging through a lot of stuff. So when I discovered Tony Collins, suddenly the fog began to clear. So uh, I I can't wait to bring you this interview. It was just fantastic to talk to him, and we'll get to that right now. Uh, Part one will be now, and uh, part two will be tomorrow. We ended up talking longer than I imagined he could possibly give me the time for. And uh, as always, I try to keep these things short. So it's going to be two. It might have to be three three parts. I'm going to have to check. We'll see. But anyway, part one comes now. Please enjoy. It's great stuff. So, okay, here in the United States, I would say that there's a fundamental confusion about this term football. So when you ask an American if they like football, they're going to automatically assume you mean the NFL. Um, While there are other leagues that play this style of football or something close to it, see the Canadian Football League, the NFL is so big. They have just taken over what the notion of football means to Americans, in my opinion. So it wasn't, to me at least, it wasn't until the Soccer World Cup in 1994 that came here to the United States that there was even any awareness that when the rest of the world says football, they don't mean what we think of as football. (laughs) I I could be wrong about that, but it felt like that was the time, the, the year that everyone, oh, the rest of the world calls something else football. So why is all this? Why are there competing ideas of the term football? And quite frankly, in a game like the NFL, where there's almost no kicking, why is the term football even applied? So to answer these questions and all the questions that logically follow that, I would strongly urge you to look up Tony Collins, a writer who has, for me, been a revelation in terms of understanding the evolution of the game. Uh, Professor Collins, you mentioned in our emails that I could call you Tony. Is that all right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, uh, professor is is my job title, uh, but... uh, 
um, amongst friends and everybody else. I'm just Tony. <laughs> That's good. Thank you very much. Well, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and for helping me to hopefully shed some light on what particularly in the United States can be a, a pretty confusing subject. Let's face it. So yeah, go sorry. ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I was, no. I was, sorry, I was going to jump in and talk and uh, talk a bit about the football question. Mm. Um, if that's where you want to start, of course. Well, I think what it's interesting that you say that because um, when I was growing up, I, mean, I come from Hull, which is a, a port town in the north of England, kind of blue collar town, and the main game there is is rugby league, the thirteen man version of rugby, and um, my grandfather always called it football. And now there's a soccer team in Hull, Hull City, which is uh, was in the Premier League uh, not so long ago, but uh, is now in the Championship. Um, and I always wondered, well, hang on, we've got a football team, which is Hull City, and we've got two rugby teams, two rugby league teams, Hull KR and Hull FC. So why does my granddad call it football? Mm. And he was born in 1907. And when he was growing up, football encompassed all the different versions oh. of that came from the original games of football as they were played in the 19th century. Oh, so he, whether he, it was... He didn't just mean rugby league. He also could have meant a soccer match. He would have just said... Football. Well, he could have done, but because we came from Hull and rugby league was a dominant game there, football meant rugby oh, league. Okay. Whereas if he'd have gone um, you know, 60 miles down the road to, say, for example, Nottingham or Sheffield, football would have meant soccer. And... Bizarrely, if he had gone to rugby school, the birthplace of rugby, football would mean rugby, rugby union. Right, right. And so a lot of it depends, bizarrely, on which yeah. type of football got there first. So if you go to, go to Sydney in Australia, where there's, there's four football codes, there's rugby league, rugby union, Australian rules and soccer, it's very difficult to know which game people are talking about when they say, did you see the football <laughs> at the weekend? Oh, yeah. Because they could mean rugby league, they could mean Aussie rules. And so it's very confusing, even for someone like me who's steeped in the game. So the first time I went to Sydney, people were talking about football, and I wasn't quite sure which type of football they meant. So when Kiwis say footy, do they exclusively mean rugby, or is that also sort of for multiple codes? Well, in, no, in, it's interesting. In New Zealand, it's slightly different because rugby has always been known as rugby. But on the other hand, you get, you get a situation where people will talk about good footballers which would mean an artful, crafty rugby player or someone with a football brain. So it's kind of um, New Zealand and South Africa is the same as well, because it's always rugby. But on the other hand, within rugby, if you like, people talk about footballers, naturally gifted footballers, great football talent, uh, by which normally they mean people have a really good rugby great brain. They're fast, intelligent, strategic in the way they view the game. So, um, so obviously in America, you have a situation where... The, the world's dominant co um, code of football, soccer, is not the dominant game. Right. The NFL is, college football is. And so that's football. And it's a real struggle for soccer to be accepted as football in places where it's not the dominant code. So, for example, in Australia, where you know it's probably fourth or third or fourth most important code behind the league and obviously rules, um, the Football Association of Australia insisted, maybe 10, 15 years ago, insisted that all the press called it football and not soccer, because oh. it, it decided that that would make it more legitimate and help it compete against the other football codes. 
So <laughs> it's incredibly confusing. Wow. So I, I think a good question is, so let's go back to the beginning then. When did all this begin? It's my understanding, mostly from reading your work, uh, before there were codified rules, there was, of course, folk football, sometimes uh, even played between entire towns. Is that right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think as long as as long as humans have um, um, been able to play games with inflatable balls or even you know, wooden balls, then there's been game team games that have, have resembled in some ways, or at least resembled the elements in some ways of the modern codes of football. Uh, and so in England, France, many European countries in the um, before the 19th century, before the Industrial Revolution, there were lots of different football games played. As you said, there was it was called folk football. Uh, it was played between towns. Uh, you often had a situation where games were played on uh, sort of festival holiday oh, um, right. days, uh, like Shrove Tuesday, which was a big festival throughout Europe. And you'd often get um, teams made of one half of a town or a village playing against the other half of a town. So you know, everybody would join in and they'd have to get the ball from uh, their end of the town to, the, to a goal at the other end of the town. And they'd go over fields, through streets, over rivers, through rivers. And some of these games still play today in um, in Britain. There's a game in, in, in Italy that's similar to this too. It's like a ton of people on each side and it's just brutal. Absolutely, yeah, I, I, and that's probably the best um, remaining example of this in um, in Florence. Mm. Um, it's um, called Calcio Fiorentina, right? And it's played it's um, a couple once of a times year, every I think, year, or a couple of times. Yeah, okay. I think it's a couple of times, but it's played on a particular festival, and it dates back to the um, the 15th, 16th centuries when it became it was a uh, it was a major part of the culture of the town. Um, and it's it's kind of preserved today as a kind of tourist attraction or part of the general oh. uh, festivals in summer. So it's it's worth going to see. It's a fantastic spectacle, and it's it's strange to modernise because um, although it's claimed by Italian soccer as being the forerunner of soccer, to modernise it looks more like a kind of rugby, a kind of uh, NFL college football style game. There's um, it's very brutal. There's a lot of hits off the ball. Uh, fights break out all the time, and the idea is you've got to get the ball um, over to the other end of the pitch, over to the other end of the pitch, uh, and score against your opponent. So it's not really very much like soccer. Mm. And I think this is a thing about many of the old-style games that were played in the towns and villages before the Industrial Revolution in Europe. Well, that leads that me. They, that, oh, I'm sorry. That this leads me perfectly yeah. to this question, which is. So is it also true that while people were using the term football, that definitely didn't mean no hands. In fact, most of these early iterations probably did involve either carrying or handing off or passing to some extent. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, there's, there's very, um, there's almost no evidence of any games where only kicking the ball was allowed in, as it is in, mo in modern soccer. And, you, you know, certainly historians in the 19th century, when they look back at the older types of, uh, football when they were comparing them to modern soccer or rugby uh, they made the point that, this, that, that there isn't an example of soccer soccer in a way is a is an anomaly because you can't well, use your hands was it a gimmick was it that they said okay let's do this match to sort of just as a gimmick to see if people will come and pay money to see this and then it kind of worked out or am i imagining that whole thing no it, it kind of it kind of evolved in um 
what was going on in the middle of the 19th century in England, uh, the top private schools, the elite private schools, all had their own code of football, which more or less involved kicking the ball. You could handle it. <clears throat> Even soccer allowed handling initially. You could catch it. You could knock it down with your hands. Um, but mo only in rugby could you actually run with the ball in your hands, hand off people, oh, okay, and try okay. and make forward progress like that. Uh, but even in rugby, there was a lot of kicking of the ball, and the scrum initially was about dribbling the ball forward rather than healing the ball back, as we know today. Mm. The idea was to dribble it forward and break up your opponent's pack uh, and kick the ball downfield and chase it and hopefully score a try. So there was a lot of kicking involved in all types of the game. Um, soccer evolved because it, I think in some ways, the people who supported soccer in the, the particular private schools where, where that type of game was more popular felt that rugby was probably more dangerous because you had to bend down and pick up the ball. Mm. Uh, and so there was a lot of concern in Britain in the middle of the 19th century when all this was emerging about the safety of sports. Really? Uh, how, how to, yeah, how to protect um, you know, boys and young men who were playing it. Because there were a number of deaths, uh, a number of deaths took place, very bad injuries in school games. So an idea developed that it was, it was uh, less dangerous to play just a kicking game although this itself became very controversial and there wasn't really much evidence that that was true. But I think that's that's probably how these initial divisions between rugby and soccer developed, because initially, certainly up until, well, certainly up until the, the beginning of the 20th century, dribbling the ball in rugby was a highly prized skill. Hmm. Uh, and some nations such as Scotland specialised in forwards who could dribble the ball downfield and control it, kind of a bit like soccer. Oh, I, I never knew that. So and this is like we were talking ahead of time. It's hard to know how basic to make it, but I, I figure it's at least worth it since at least half of my listeners are here in the United States. So for any of you who don't know, I think Tony already mentioned the name of the sport rugby does originally come from the name of the school where it started. Uh, it's the rugby school, a school that was founded back in 1567. I think it's still actively a school today. You can still, you can still go Absolutely. there. If, if, you, if you ever come to England um, to visit, and you get you get a chance to go to the Midlands. Uh, rugby's about maybe uh, about 120 miles from London. Um, the school does organise tours occasionally, so you can go, oh. go you can go on a tourist visit to the school, and they will show you around. Wow, uh, it's a fan, absolutely fantastic. It's like if you're a Harry Potter fan, it really feel at home. So I, I I have here that it is worth talking about the differences between what Americans think of as public versus private schools and how those terms are used in the UK. Can you just explain that a little bit? Uh, well, this is very confusing. If you're not English, uh, it's very confusing indeed, because uh, in England, uh, the term public school refers to an elite private school, such as um, Eton, which is like the most prestigious school, Harrow, another school that produces, you know, leading politicians, uh, military men, uh, businessmen, and people like that. And rugby is rugby school is one of those schools. It's it's based in the town of rugby, which is where it gets its name. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, which is about 120 miles from London. It's in the English Midlands, and it is um, uh, it was really in the 19th century the most progressive and forward-looking school oh. in England. So, so much so that it became the model for many schools that were being created and set up in the 19th century because 
Uh, it both had a very modern curriculum and emphasised uh, mathematics and languages, uh, but also because it, it emphasised sport. Sport as a, a character building um, uh, form of education, in a sense, not just a recreation, well, but a part what, of the overall education of, of the boys who went there. That's kind of inevitably where this was headed too. So these elite schools, of course, are competing against each other. So you've got, I think, Eton rules. I think you had Cambridge rules and, of course, rugby rules. And then I think I wrote here, uh, There was it you who said there was a, a sort of officious Scott at rugby school who decided maybe it was a good idea to actually write down these rules instead of just teach them out loud and have everyone verbally understand that? Well, well, that's, that, again, that's a really interesting question because, yeah, rugby was the first school that actually wrote down its rules um, in a, a little booklet uh, that was circulated amongst the boys at the school so they would know how to play the game. Uh, and that was in um, 1845. Um, but the Scots, you mentioned the Scots, the Scots were, in a sense, ahead of the game because rugby was very popular in Scottish schools in the 1850s and 1860s, and they actually wrote down their rules of rugby before the Rugby Football Union wrote oh. its rules. So in a sense, the first general rules of rugby that applied to many schools, not just to a single school like the rugby, rugby school rules, were written in Scotland. They famously, famously became known as the Green Book that all the different schools in Scotland uh, played the game of rugby by. So rugby, along with many or most of the other top schools, they, they strongly believed in the value of sport in the lives of young men, and in these cases, particularly well-bred Christian young men, I think it's fair to say. Um, these are the people who would have inevitably climbed to positions of power and importance. And uh, it must be mentioned, a big part of the impetus for the value placed on sport came from the book that you must be so tired of talking about at this stage. Of course, Tom Brown's School Days, which I actually have on my Kindle, which seems like a strange anomaly somehow. But um, do you mind briefly talking about that book and the way it impacted the evolution of football codes like rugby? Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting that in in many ways it was Tom Brown's school days um, that helped to launch rugby and give rugby the game a prominence uh, in Britain in the 19th century, which led to its spread around the world. Um, and it was written in 1857 by a um, a, a guy called Thomas Hughes who had been a pupil at the school. And he wrote it as a, a guide to what his son uh, could expect when he went to that school. Uh, and that, sadly, his son um, died in um, when he was 89 years old and never made it to the school, unfortunately. Oh, no, I didn't. I had no idea. Yeah, it's a tragic story. But the book came out and it became an immediate bestseller. I mean, it was literally the Harry Potter of its day. And there are some, if you read the first Harry Potter book and Tom Brown's school days, there are some parallels they're not that dissimilar apart from that there's no magic in tom brown school days um, very little but yeah but it's tom brown school days describes what it's like to be a boy at rugby school in the uh, 1830s 1840s uh, it's very much about how the school educates its young men and boys uh, so it's it's about learning moral lessons about how to become a man and behave like a man behave with honor uh, how to uh, and to be leaving things like fair play, sportsmanship, team building, and, the, the, and the, the phrase "muscular Christianity" comes up a lot. Absolutely, and it's it's the the, the core of the book is precisely that it's, it's a muscular Christian philosophy that believes that um, Christianity, um, as it was seen by the Victorian uh, British, uh, was about being active. It wasn't about contemplating and uh, withdrawing from the world. 
it was about being active and going out into the world and taking the gospel as they saw it uh, to the rest of the world or to the to those people in Britain who you know who were working in factories, uh, uh, working in a big industrial town. So it was very much muscular Christianity was from a British perspective was very much in a sense it was about the British character, building the British character and uh, giving the British a reason and a rationale for uh, for running the British Empire. Um, and rugby was a part of that. Playing sport was a part of that. And so rugby, the game, became part of the way that the school educated its boys. Uh, it wasn't simply about learning in, in the classroom. They believed it was about learning uh, on the field when you're playing the game of rugby. And this, so this is kind of where the phrase rugby values we hear so much might have come from. Um, and a big part of rugby values at the time re revolved around what we would probably think of now simply as classism. Do you think that's fair? I mean, the people playing these sports in school didn't then go on to grueling jobs with long hours. They are, for the most part, men of leisure. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the, the, um, the key thing about it, that it was seen as a way for the for the boys at rugby school and the other schools that played rugby, because again, Tom Brown's school days uh, meant that rugby was taken up by many other private schools uh, in Britain as well, because it was seen as the the model for how a school should operate, mm -hmm. and the model for the role that sports should play in the school. But all these young men uh, were trained to be the leaders of Britain, and that they would um, either go into the empire and lead the empire over its subject peoples, or they would become um, businessmen or administrators in Britain and would set an example and lead, uh, mm -hmm. if you like, the working classes uh, and teach them how to behave and how to fulfil their role in society. And, um, and that was very central to the way that rugby school saw itself. And in the beginning, it was very central to how rugby the game saw itself as well. Well, for, for that reason, it's, it's very important to rugby, especially early on, or at least important to the people in charge of the sport, that it remained strictly amateur. And when I say strictly, I mean any hint of professionalism in your band. It was like that. Is that right? Can you, can you talk about that? See, I don't think there's an equivalent in the United States. Maybe there's some niche Olympic sports that are wholly amateur, but I'm just not aware of them. Well, in the same, I mean, the interesting thing about the States, obviously it's highly professional and highly commercial uh... Uh, it's a highly commercial and professional sports world. But um, the NCAA is probably the only major sporting organisation in the world that still clings on to amateurism. And whether it is amateur or not is obviously another question. Yeah. Um, but that's, that, a, a lot of that is a legacy of the, um, of the, the sporting uh, lessons uh, that was taken from Britain uh, to America. Because one of the things that happened is that... Um, this idea that uh, people in rugby should should lead those people they saw uh, who belong to lower classes um, came under immense pressure in the 1880s. Rugby had become incredibly popular. It was a, it was a much more popular sport than soccer in the 1870s and the early 1880s. Uh, and that meant that there were literally hundreds of thousands of players and spectators who came into the game and loved the game, played the game from the big industrial towns in, uh, in, in the North England, particularly South Wales. Wales. Yeah, yeah. The, the mining villages in Wales, I think. The, that's right, in the, in, the, in, the, in the mines, in the docks, the steel mills. In a lot of places, rugby had become a blue-collar sport. And this caused a lot of concern to the leaders of the Rugby Football Union, which was the governing body of the game 
had been formed in 1871 because they felt that the, the game could slip from their control. And in soccer, in 1884, they had legalised professionalism in the game. Um, this is and, Association Football, I think they called their group, is that right? Yeah, well, they called... They, um, the Football Association, yeah, the Football Association was a governing body of soccer, which had been formed before the Rugby Football Union, but it had been not been very successful until the 1870s, it started to cap 1870s, oh. is started it, to is catch it up. Is it true that soccer is a corruption of the word association? Yeah, you get a, um, in, 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 um, in England particularly, but throughout Britain in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, there was a trend, uh, a fashion for shortening words uh, <laughs> in, in the private schools. And so rugby became rugger. Oh, yeah. You still occasionally hear. You still hear. Yeah. <laughs> and association became soccer because it had SOC in the middle. Uh, and a lot of British people <laughs> think, oh, this is soccer. It's just an Americanism. I can't, you know, I, I, I can't <laughs> agree to call a game that. But in fact, it's not. It comes from Britain. That's great. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So soccer went professional. And the within 18 months of soccer going professional, the, the, te- the, the teams that they had from private schools, the university-based teams, they were eclipsed by what was seen as working-class teams, professional working-class teams. Mm. And the no soccer team that was composed of players from a private school or university background ever competed in the FA Cup final after that. Oh. In rugby, the guys who ran rugby thought, hang on a minute, we don't really want this to happen. We don't, mm. Otherwise, we'll lose control. Of Making us look bad. And so, yeah, they decided that the, the way to stop that, to control that, was to make the game entirely amateur. And that anybody who received any payment would be banned from playing rugby. Uh, and that led to a terrible civil war throughout the game. Well, I, I think... I think I'm quoting you. There was the great line that I've loved for quite a while. In Wales, they pretended not to pay the players, and in England, they pretended not to notice. Was that one of yours? That's right. Yeah, they, yeah. In <laughs> in in South Wales, uh, where rugby had become yeah you know, the, the game of the population, everybody played it. It was hugely popular. Um, the um, there was a tradition, like there was there was in all the areas where rugby was popular amongst the you know, blue-collar industrial working-class people, of, uh, of paying players covertly. And uh, in Wales, um, Wales refused to break away and join the, the Rebel Rugby League, which, wanted to, which paid players in the north of England. Uh, but they kind of developed this underground culture where players would receive what they call boot money <laughs> or their travel expenses, which you could get, were ridiculously inflated. Uh, and so there was a kind of modus vivendi reached between the Welsh Rugby Union and the English Rugby Union, which really wanted to stamp out any type of payment, whereby the Welsh, um, the Welsh pretended that they didn't pay their players and the English kind of turned a blind eye to that and pretended to believe that the Welsh didn't pay their players. Uh, and so that lasted for, for the best part of a century. I think you've said in many ways, the Scottish were the most strict about this too. They were the most sort of wanting to sniff it out and penalise it. Is that right? Absolutely. The Scots were even more um, devoutly amateur than the than the English were, despite the fact it was the English that had come up with the rules to uh, to uh, outlaw professionalism. So the Scots um, did not like playing uh, touring sides. So um, they didn't like playing the, the touring All Blacks or the Wallabies or the Springboks because they felt that to go on a tour meant that you, you must be professional because you weren't doing your job. How could you support yourself? 
Yeah. Unless you were, you know, very privileged and could afford to pay for six months off work, um, they suspected that um, the touring sides were actually uh, being paid and they were professional. So the Scots were very, very reluctant to get involved in, in tours. And at one point, that led in 1908 to a, a break in relations between the Scottish Rugby Union and the, and the Rugby Football Union in England. Ah, I'm almost afraid to, to bring it up because <laughs> I think I was actually watching and following rugby union for almost a year before I even learned that there was another sport called rugby league. Um, and it's funny too, because, you know, there is no rugby coverage in the United States. So I go to the BBC website generally to, to look for it there. It never even occurred to me that the version of the BBC site here is different than the one you look at there. So when I go to the sports section of the BBC website, Rugby union is listed. Rugby league is not listed. It's not even oh. there, <laughs> which, yeah. which people in England have said, oh, no, no, it's there. So um, really interesting. But so, of course, that was professionalism. Um, I said here, I'm almost afraid to bring it up. So one of the things that made professionalism inevitable was, of course, the money. Um, when you looked at big cup tournaments that the you know, Football Association was running, it seems like they were doing well with that. And then, of course, there also had emerged a form of professional rugby, uh, rugby league, which I'm still, the fact that they didn't just come up with a new name <laughs> is still baffling to me. But uh, can you talk about rugby league? Am I right in saying that you're actually a, a league fan more than a union fan? Well, I, I was I was born and bred in Hull, which is a rugby league hotbed. So, so yeah, it's kind of just part of my you know, natural uh, natural tapestry of my life. So I, I, went, I was taken to my first game when I was... Uh, seven years old and my father was taken by his father and his father was taken by his father so yeah it's just part it's part it's it's part of the blood but i'm a scholar of both games um so, so rugby league really was the result of the 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 very strong clubs in the north of england where rugby was uh, apart from some pockets of soccer rugby in the 1890s was the dominant game in the north of england so for example uh, the cities of manchester and liverpool which today we think of as being you know the absolute heartlands of soccer in the 1880s, they were seen as, as, as rugby heartlands. Hmm. Um, but unfortunately, amateurism meant that soccer, uh, amateurism in rugby uh, meant that you know, there were no league competitions, there was no national cup competition. So rugby found it very hard to compete with soccer in some areas. Um, but in, for most of the rugby clubs in, uh, in the north of England, in the industrial north of England, uh, they responded to the threat of soccer partially by... Uh, but they wanted to pay their players uh, because you know tens of thousands of people were going to matches, going to watch cup ties, and they um, uh, they believed that if they didn't pay their players, then the, you know the players they would eventually to, move to soccer. To soccer yeah. Which one or two, one or two did go did go over to play soccer where they could be paid openly. So, my friends, thank you so much for coming along for part one of that great interview. Uh, parts two and three, yes, I have decided um, it's got to be three parts instead of two. Sorry for what I said at the first. Um, it's more than an hour and a half. And, you know, based on the time frame I'm trying to use for this pod, um, just cutting it in half would be too much. So three parts. I also uh, I have been asked because of the, the three-part JB interview, people said, oh, well, you kind of spent a long time at the beginning of the following, you know, the follow-up pods setting it up and it uh, doesn't really feel like you jump right back into the interview. So I'm going to do a better job of that as well. So please, please follow me on Twitter. I am at of scrum. 
please, please get in touch via email. I'm at the scrum of the earth at gmail.com. I will always respond as quickly as I can. I always appreciate any positive reviews you can leave. Uh, and by the way, my stats have told me that I have uh, some new listeners in different places, including Germany, and that's pretty cool. So uh, if you are that listener, please get in touch. Maybe you have some info about the uh, the German football league that I talked to Tony about in this very episode. So everybody, thank you so much for listening. Cheers and be well. 